Well, today is Father's Day. I hope that's not a news flash for you. You may be a little late if you haven't made reservations already. And I do want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads who have gathered here with us. We are, we are gifted in our church to have so many godly fathers. And let me just say a word of encouragement to you. There's no better place to be on a day like today than with God's people worshiping our heavenly father. Because dads, what better gift could you give your children, could you give your family than teaching them to value the gathering of God's people? As a church, we talk a lot about the influence of fathers, about the significant role that God has given to you, to us, in, in the lives of our children. And we've even seen this unfold in the, the story of Joseph. A lot of the tension surrounding Joseph's story was due to the failure of his father and the way that Jacob showed preferential treatment to one son at the expense of the others. And I believe it serves as a reminder to us on this Father's Day of God's intentionality with the family and the roles he has given within the family. One of the greatest responsibilities of earthly fathers is to point their children to their heavenly father, a greater father who is in heaven. It's our greatest job, our greatest privilege to teach our children about God, to show him, to show them his faithfulness, to show how God has revealed himself through his word and how the gospel of Jesus has transformed our lives. I want you to hear me today. There's no greater legacy that we could leave as fathers seeking to honor God than a legacy of faith. Let me ask you this question. What will your children and your grandchildren, the generations that come after you, say about you and your love for God? Let me, let me speak it corporately. What will our children, our grandchildren, the generations that come after us, say about us and our love for God? It's a weighty question, but one that I think Scripture is asking us to consider as we approach the end of the book of Genesis. Because at the end of Joseph's life in Genesis chapter 50, we see what the generations who came after him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said of his life and the legacy that he left. And what I hope God will do among us as a people this morning is to allow the legacy of Joseph to challenge our own legacy, not just as dads, certainly as dads, but also as parents, as, as moms and dads, as church members, in any role where we are influencing the next generation of Jesus followers. We should ask this question of ourselves. Are we leading the next generation into greater faithfulness to God? That's what Joseph did. And by God's grace, I believe that's what we are called to do as well until the day that Jesus comes to take us home. Let's look at Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to read verses 15 to 26 this morning. Here's what the Word of God said. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the, the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. 
Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers came and they fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, don't fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I will provide for you and your little, your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you will carry up my bones from here. And Joseph did. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 50, Jacob has just died, the father of Joseph. And by the end of Genesis 50, Joseph joins him in death. And you know, anytime we face death, there's also a question of legacy. What do we learn from this life that we are memorializing or celebrating at a funeral as we look at the text of Scripture today? What are we to learn from the life of Joseph? Why did God set his story in inspired Scripture for us to consider as the people of God even today? So this morning, I want to consider that legacy of Joseph, even as we ask the Holy Spirit to help us consider our own legacy. What's clear in terms of legacy of Joseph, a significant part of his legacy is a legacy of forgiveness. We've talked a lot about forgiveness in this series. In some ways, talking about the legacy of Joseph will be kind of a recap of all we've learned along the way through the back half, the back portions of the book of Genesis. It's clear that one of the, the chief features that God wants us to see in Joseph's story is a supernatural forgiveness once again on display in Genesis chapter 50. After the death of Jacob, a fear begins to creep into the minds of Joseph's brothers. And they begin to question whether or not Joseph has truly forgiven them. Now that the restraining presence of their father has gone, will he finally exact his revenge? And so they send a message to Joseph. They're even too afraid to appear, appear before him. So they send a messenger on their behalf. And here's what the message says. Your dad told us before he died to forgive us. Now, we don't know whether or not Jacob actually said this. It's, it's certainly possible that he said it. It's possible and probable that along the time that he's living in Egypt, now that he knows Joseph's alive, he probably asked the question, hey, Joseph, how did you get here? And Joseph told his father about his brothers, or the brothers confess to their father. It's possible, probable that Jacob knows. And it's possible, probable that Jacob said this, but we don't know it. But the brothers want Joseph to think that he said it because of their fear. They come before him even after they send the message. They, they fall before him asking for forgiveness. Here's the reality. The brothers knew they had acted so wickedly 
They had showed so much evil to Joseph. They could not believe that Joseph would forgive them. And this grieves Joseph. We see in verse 17, because he has forgiven them. And he's evidenced that forgiveness by bestowing blessing upon them, welcoming them to his land in his family. It grieves him that they would not believe his forgiveness. But once again, he extends words of comfort. He offers them forgiveness, urging them not to fear, but saying again, I will take care of you. And as we read this, as we did earlier in the story of Joseph, we are surprised once again by the nature of Joseph's forgiveness. It's almost unbelievable when you've been betrayed in this way, when you've experienced this kind of abuse, our desire in our flesh is retribution. We want these people to pay and yet to offer forgiveness is so surprising and God honoring that it makes us wrestle with our own response. Why would Joseph forgive his brothers in this way when we would want something different? And that leads to the second part of Joseph's legacy. Not only did Joseph leave a legacy of forgiveness, he also left a legacy of trust. Joseph was able to extend forgiveness to his brothers because of the remarkable trust he had in the providence of God. That even though the brothers acted in evil ways toward him, that God was acting in greater ways for the good. Look at verses 19 and 20. Some of the most inspiring scriptures and uh, inspiring verses in all of scripture. The brothers here before Joseph, falling down before him, asking for forgiveness. And Joseph said to them, verse 19, don't fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you did mean evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And what Joseph says here is reflective of what he said back in Genesis 45, when he extended his, to his brother's forgiveness the first time in verses four to eight. He says to his brothers, as he's about to reveal himself to them, come near to me, please. They came near and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Don't be distressed or angry because you sold me here for God sent me here before you to preserve life. The famine has been in, these, in the land these two years. There are yet five years left. There will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here, although you sold me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house, ruler over all of the land of Egypt. It's astonishing what Joseph is saying here. You meant evil, but God meant good. Now, what does Joseph mean by this? Now, he's not excusing their wickedness. He's not excusing their evil ways. They're responsible for what they did. And they will have to give account to that before a holy and righteous God one day. But Joseph is resting in the providence of God. Joseph believed that, believes that nothing that happens in his life is outside of the control of God. As my friend, Dr. Stephen Trammell often says, nothing happens in our life that is not father filtered. Or to put it another way, everything in our life that does happen is father filtered. Joseph believed 
And the trust that he had in God allowed him to see the events of his life differently. Yes, you sold me, but God sent me, and the sending is greater than the selling. And I'm going to rest, rest in God's providential care and purpose, even when I can't see it. Even when I can't see it, because I have that much trust in God. And then finally, Joseph left a legacy of hope. In the previous chapter of Genesis, when Jacob is dying, he commands his children to take his body back to the land of promise. He wanted to be buried with his people and the land that God had given to his family. And what's interesting is that when Joseph is dying, he asked the exact same thing of his brother, of his brothers. In verse 24, he's about to die, but he's not afraid. Rather, even in the face of death, he is looking to the promises of God, evidencing trust. He knows that the covenant that God made with his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, will be realized. He has incredible faith and hope that one day God will make this family into a great nation. He will give them this land flowing with milk and honey, and he will use them to be a blessing to all nations. Joseph must return to that land because his family must return to that land because God has promised it. Joseph could die well because of where he placed his hope. Even in death, he is directing his family to trust in the promises of God, to live in faith. What's interesting is in the hall of faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, what's noted about Joseph. Listen to this in verse 22. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. They would leave Egypt and go back to the land of Canaan and gave direction concerning his bones. Think about that. Joseph's reaction to temptation, his faithfulness in Potiphar's house in the prison, his skill in leading Egypt and all the nations surrounding through years of famine, those aren't the things mentioned here. Rather, what the Lord brings into focus in this hall of faith is the confidence that Joseph had in the promises of God. He rested in sure hope and that was his legacy of faith. And what a legacy it is that Joseph offers to his family as he is leaving this world, a legacy of forgiveness, a legacy of trust, and a legacy of hope. And I hope we see that as a call to us to live our lives in the same kind of way, to to point the generations that follow us in the same kind of way toward God in faith. And I also wanna say to us that it's a call that is strengthened through the story of Jesus. Because remember, as we've seen in the entire story of Joseph, his story is meant to point us to the greater story of Jesus. And here's how it's greater. Remember, Jesus was also betrayed in greater ways. We all did extraordinarily wicked things to our older brother in the faith, Christ. We murdered him, and yet he cries from the cross, not for revenge, but for forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I want you to hear me this morning, this additional point from Genesis 50. You don't have to question the reach or the sincerity of Christ's forgiveness. Because sometimes we do that, don't we? At midnight, in the deep, deep moments of the night when we're restless and can't go to sleep and we, we begin to remember all the sinfulness in our life. 
all the wicked things that we've done, all the ways that, that we've transgressed a holy and righteous God. The enemy brings those to our mind with questions. Do you think God really forgave you for all that? Do you really believe you're covered by the blood of Jesus? Don't you know that he's just waiting up there to exact revenge upon you? Don't you know that he's just waiting to, to throw you into eternal punishment? And we begin to feel guilt and we begin to be overwhelmed by condemnation. But I want you to hear me, friend, tonight. Do not sit, or today, do not sit in fear or condemnation when Christ has offered you freedom. If you have repented and believed in Christ unto salvation, you are forgiven, period. And don't grieve him. Don't grieve him by questioning the extent of his forgiveness. When the enemy starts bringing those questions to your mind, you rest in the promises of God. It is a guaranteed forgiveness, one that Jesus offers us because of the trust he had in the plan and the will of God. Do you remember the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's wrestling between his purpose and the pain that he know will come upon the cross? He prays to God, let this cup pass from me. But if it cannot pass from me, I will do what you ask. I will do your will. I'm committing myself to your plans, your purposes. He trusted that from that pain, God would bestow, bestow glorious blessing upon his people, which he did. And because of that trust that Jesus showed in the plan and the providence of God, the Father, because of the faithfulness he showed all the way to the cross, he has become the source of our hope. Again, a greater Joseph here. Joseph does show us how to hope. Jesus, though, is our hope. He is the one in whom we place our hope. He is the promise of God. He is the first fruits of our future in his resurrection. He offers us a foretaste of what awaits us through his sacrifice and his ongoing work on our behalf. Joseph may be a good example. Jesus is our guarantee. And so here's the question. In light of the legacy of, G of Joseph, strengthened through the story of Jesus, are we leaving that kind of legacy to the next generation as fathers, as parents, as grandparents, as church members, as a gospel people? What kind of legacy are we leaving, declaring to the world? Well, let me encourage us. We should be a forgiving people. We must take this challenge away from the story of Joseph. We should be a forgiving people and we should seek to extend the kind of forgiveness that we've been offered as a testimony to the gospel. We should be so committed to forgiveness as a people that those we extend forgiveness to cannot question it. The kind of forgiveness we offer must not be contingent or conditional. When we offer forgiveness, the people we speak to should know that our yes is yes and our no is no. We mean what we are saying because we have received greater forgiveness in Christ. Listen, aren't you glad that God doesn't bring up the sins of our past to condemn us or shame us or guilt us in to obedience. That's not what God does. 
No, friends, he wants us to live in freedom. He wants us to live in abundance. He wants us to to live in a flourishing foundation with him, one built on love, one rooted in peace and set rightness. It's his loving kindness that draws us to him and keeps us with him. So let's live with the same kind of grace. Let's not hold grudges and demean people in our homes, always bringing out a laundry list of past abuses to make those we live with feel bad about something they did recently, that's a surefire way to kill a marriage. Let's not say we forgive in the the local body of believers and then gossip with our friends. That's a surefire way to split a church. No, friends, let us be a forgiving people to point others to the greater forgiveness in Christ. Let's also be a trusting people. That's certainly a lesson we must learn from the life of Joseph. You may remember that as we began this series, we looked at Paul's words in Romans 8, 28, saying that what Paul wrote there, Joseph, the story of Joseph is kind of a a living embodiment of. Here's what Paul wrote. And we know that for those who love God, all things, say with me, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I wanna, I wanna continue reading this morning in verses 29 and 30. Here's what Paul goes on to say. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. All things are working together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Now, Jared, what is the good? Well, according to this passage in Romans 8, the good is being conformed into the image of the Son. That God uses our hardships the most difficult times in our lives to help refine us to looking more like Jesus. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God is using everything that happens in our life, good or bad, to help us look more like Christ? Can we rest in that providence of God? I can honestly say, like many of you, I've had difficult moments in my life. I felt betrayal. I've had people slander my name. I have failed to live up to God's holy standard. I felt the weight of all of it. And yet I have also seen God use those difficult moments, those those horrible things I didn't know that I would get through to mature me and help me identify more with Jesus. I am more like Christ today because of those things, by God's grace. And they have helped me rely more on Jesus to walk and a man are worthy of the calling upon my life. Here's the deal. I want my kids, I want my kids to see me run toward God in difficult moments, not from him. My prayer for us as a church is that the next generation would see us run toward God in difficult moments, not from him. I want want my kids to see me trust and my trust strengthened in hard times so that they will do the same when brokenness inevitably shows up in their lives. Trusting that it pleases our Father when we run to Him, when we come to the end of ourselves and run to Him for help. Is there, is there any greater 
phrase a dad can hear from his kids and dad, we need your help. Dad, can you help me? And my kids are getting a little bit older and they're trying to exert their independence. I don't need you, dad. I got this. It, you know, kills my dad hard a little bit every time I hear those words. But every now and then, they come to something they cannot do on their own. And they come back to me and they say, dad, can you help? And the answer is always, always yes. Now, friends, we know in the Christian life, we have come to the end of ourselves. And don't you also know that it pleases our heavenly father that much more when we say to him, help, help. It, it expresses a trust in him that he will carry us, sustain us, redeem all of this for our good and for his glory? Are we living with this kind of trust? Are we praying when hard times come? Are we crying out to God? Are we seeking godly counsel and meditating on scripture? Do we press on toward the goal that is ours in Christ Jesus? Or are we paralyzed with fear and, and self-reliance? Are we holding fast to gospel hope, trusting that God will hold us fast Or are we evidencing that we're losing our grip? I want, I hope we want to express God-given supernatural trust in the promises and purposes of God. And then finally, we should be a hope-filled people. A hope-filled people. I'm convinced as I read this story of Joseph that God gave Joseph his dreams as a gift of grace. Remember those dreams we talked about and the, the first part of Joseph's story where his family was gonna come around and bow before him? I'm convinced those dreams were given by God as a gift of grace. Yes, the dreams escalated the jealousy of his brothers and it helped launch Joseph into this difficult journey. And yes, God could have done all of this without giving Joseph the dreams. But I think the dreams are what God used to sustain Joseph. He believed that what God revealed to him in those dreams would come to pass. And that allowed him to remain faithful even in the difficult times. There's a, a similar provision in the life of David. There's a lot of similarities between the, the life of Joseph and the life of David. God sent David a prophet to say to him, hey, you're gonna be king. And don't you think that promise from God and the, the anointing that he was gonna be a king helped him face Goliath, helped him face Saul when Saul was coming after him to try to murder him? I want you to hear me, church. God has given us something similar, a similar provision. God has given us a promise, a clear vision of the future. Christ has gone even now to prepare a place for us, a place of eternal rest, and one day he will come to take us home. This promise, this inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus, it cannot be taken from us, stolen from us. It is given by God and held by God. It is a sure hope that can sustain you in every circumstance. In moments of difficulty, does this sure hope show up? In the face of death, does this sure hope 
show up? Will you remind your children, your grandchildren of the promises of God, not facing death in fear, but rather in faith, helping them to remember that God is not finished yet and this place is not our home. Where I am going is better. Although I will miss you, I am thrilled to be in the presence of my Savior and the presence of my God. There will be a day when we will be reunited in a greater land of promise. You set your hope there, not in the, the breath that is this world. What better legacy could we give our children than that? As a church, what better legacy could we hand down to the next generation than a legacy of the gospel? of forgiveness, of trust, and hope. It's a legacy I hope that we will proclaim until the day Christ returns and that we will proclaim now for the taking of the Lord's Supper. After our supper, we'll have opportunity for you to respond in other ways to the preaching of God's word. But our first response today is going to be taking the supper. as a public declaration of the legacy of faith that has been entrusted to us. Now, because it is attached to the the message of the gospel, I do wanna set the table for us this morning in a particular way. We invite all baptized believers to partake of the supper today. And I wanna just make a clarifying statement there. In saying that, we invite baptized believers. We're not saying that baptism is what makes you a Christian. That's faith alone in Christ alone, through repentance and belief. But because of our conviction as Baptists and the way that we view the ordinances and church membership, how it identifies both with Christ but also the local church, we feel strongly about this. And so we invite all those who are baptized believers to join us at the table. Let me just say this. If, you're not, if you are a follower of Christ and you've not been baptized, let me encourage you to be baptized. That's a first step of obedience If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to take this moment and hear and see the declaration of the people here who are gathered, who are saying that I was lost, but I have been found in Christ. That the body of Jesus was broken for me, his blood was shed so that I could be freed from my sin, freed from condemnation and experience forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. And I'm declaring again that I'm identifying with Jesus, his mission, his life, and this body of believers, these people who are walking alongside me to push me on to that that glorious day when we will join God in heaven forever. And would you ask God to use that to open your eyes, to see your need for forgiveness and Christ as the only source of forgiveness. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to make sure that you approach this table in a manner worthy of its message because we are declaring something and taking it together. We are, we are declaring that we have identified with Christ, we're living with Christ, and we're trying to live with his people. Is that true in your life? Is, that, is there a faithful declaration you're making and partaking of this supper? Let me ask you a couple of questions in relation to our sermon today. Do you have sin in your life or relational strife that you need to confess this morning? Do you need to offer forgiveness or ask 
for forgiveness because of something you've done that is, that is threatening the testimony of the supper. We want to heed the words of Scripture and take this supper in a way that is worthy of its message and true to its message. So wherever you are, you bow your heads? Just consider for a moment. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you know how you're doing. Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, would you ask God to open your eyes? as you've heard the testimony of the gospel, to see the testimony of the gospel and respond in repentance and belief. If you are a follower of Jesus, have you taken that first step of baptism? And if you have, are you living in a way that affirms the testimony that we're about to give? Is there anything you need to confess? Get right before the Lord. And if your conscience is clear, would you rejoice in the gospel? Would you rejoice in the forgiveness that we have been offered in Christ? The glorious gospel message, the faith given to us by God, and the hope that we rest in. What a legacy. Father, may we take this supper in a way that brings honor to you, that brings us closer to you in fellowship and closer to each other as your people. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.